We will now have a reading from God's word. Our reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead. We are uh, continuing this morning our summer sermon series through what we refer to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, As we've said so far, this is a a point early in Jesus' ministry where he sat down and took time to work through several, uh, several, several issues with his disciples, his followers. And and Jesus is speaking in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, and, and what we have seen, and kind of our big takeaway so far over the last couple of weeks as we've looked at this sermon, is that Jesus speaks with authority. And what we, what we mean when we say that, the crowds listened to Jesus, and they heard in Jesus' words something that was fundamentally different than all the other teachers, than all the other scribes, Everybody else who spoke and told them, this is what you should do, this is who God is, this is the way things should be. All the other teachers spoke, and they spoke from the authority of some other source. And specifically, especially the scribes, and we're going to be talking about this somewhat today, the scribes would teach the Jewish people, but they would teach them from the scriptures. And so their authority, as scribes, their authority came from another source. And what they said was authoritative only so long as it came from the source they were speaking from. Jesus comes in, and Jesus doesn't have any other source material. Jesus is the source. And Jesus speaks with his own authority. And so to know whether what Jesus is saying is true or not doesn't come from and isn't based on, well, where did you get that, Jesus? Where? Why do you think that's true? Show me where that's coming from. Jesus speaks, and it's just true because he says it. And, and, and it's not that the, the people all got together and listened to him and said, you know what? He's doing a good job. What he says lines up with what I believe. Let's listen to what he has to say. When they heard him, and, and Matthew who wrote says both people who agreed and people who weren't so sure whether they agreed or not, they all listened to him and still recognized he is speaking with authority. And so what we've said and the question we've asked as we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks is, what do we do with that? When Jesus speaks, and Jesus speaks with authority, and it comes into conflict with the way we, in our own natural or cultural understanding of the world, think the world should function, think the world should work, what do we do? When Jesus has authority that goes against the authority we want to have over our own lives, how do we respond? So today I want to look at this passage, and like I said, I said this at the beginning, um, we're not going to hit every single verse as we go through this because uh, we, we just wouldn't have time, and so we're skipping ahead just a little bit, but I want to look at this one passage, and it's actually a pretty dense and complicated passage, and I'm going to do my best 
um, to, to, to go through this in the, the simplest way I can today. But in order to understand where Jesus is going, we're going to have to give some context to this. So I want you, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask that you kind of stick with me because there's some teachy stuff that we have to get through to get to the heart of what Jesus is trying to say here. Here's the big picture, though. Here's the big question, to put it like just really bluntly, because this is a question that a lot of people ask. As Christians, if we say, if we preach as a church, if we look at the New Testament, we say the New Testament teaches that our salvation, that our right standing with God is based 100% completely and totally on God's grace for us. If it's not based on what we do, if we don't earn our right standing with God, then here's the big question. So does that mean as Christians, as believers, do we still have to follow the rules? Can we just do whatever we want? Like, what about all this stuff and all these commands and all these rules? Like, how do we even look at those? If, if it's true that our, our right standing with God is 100% totally and completely based on what He did, not based on what we do, then why, why does the Bible have so many things that we're supposed to do? Can't we just do whatever? So, and and, uh, that's not very artfully put, but that's the question that I want to talk about because that's the question Jesus is talking about here in these verses. Um, And so, in order to understand Jesus' answer to that question, though, we have to give quite a bit of context, okay? Um, In fact, I'm going to start with something that might sound really, really basic, but it's really important understanding that. And I need need to define what the Bible is, okay? Um, Because we we use these terms and, and talk about things in a way that I think Maybe we take for granted some, some understanding that's really foundational. When we say the Bible, or we say scripture, we're talking about, um, it, it is a single book, but it's more than a single book. It's actually 66 different documents that are collected together. Um, we refer to them as books. So we say the Bible is a book, but it has 66 books in it, and that can get confusing to people sometimes. But there's 66 different documents that are recorded and put together. We believe because they were all divinely inspired by God. But those 66 different books that are put together that we call the Bible are divided into two very important major distinctions. Okay, And we as Christians refer to these two distinctions, these two divisions, as the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now I say as Christians, and I've put them in quotation marks, because there's nothing, again, the Bible wasn't written like one person didn't sit down and write this whole thing out. And it wasn't like when your, your favorite author writes a book and they're like chapter one, chapter two, and like I'm, this part's the Old Testament, now I'm going to work on writing the New Testament. This has all happened over thousands of years. And so what we as Christians refer to as the Old Testament is actually what the Jewish people would have referred to just as the scriptures. Okay, it's actually called, there's the, so the first 39 books in your Bible, if you have a Christian Bible, the first 39 books are what Jewish people would call the Tanakh. Okay, the Tanakh, the, the Jewish scriptures, Tanakh is actually uh, what we call a, an anagram, which means, or not an anagram, um, what's the word where you, the letter, I'm just totally blanking. An acronym, thank you so much. Uh, you're like, why are you up on stage? Oh, we should be, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Tanakh is an acronym, T-N and K, which stands for the Hebrew words for law, prophets, and writings, which are how the Jewish people divide their scriptures up. The law is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the first five, they refer to that as the law, or you may have heard the term Torah, which starts with a T. I'm not going to try to remember the N and the K because I've already messed up once. So, But the N stands for prophets and the K stands for writings. And 
All of those together make up the Jewish scriptures. So, when Jesus refers to anywhere in the New Testament, or any of the New Testament, what we refer to as the New Testament writers, the New Testament uh, was written later by people who this was their scriptures. This was the books that they had. And they didn't have them all together in a single volume that was leather-bound. They had several 39 scrolls that they could read these on. But when they refer to the scriptures, they're talking about this. Okay? Oftentimes, in these writings, these 27 books, they'll refer to the Old Testament, what we call the, the Old Testament. They'll refer to them sometimes as the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus is, the term Jesus is going to use here. We're going to see that in a minute. Sometimes they'll shorten that and just call it the law. So, here's why this is important. A lot of times we look at, and we're reading in here, in the New Testament, and we see this word law. And this word law can mean a couple of different things. And we need to understand when we see this word law, what it means. Because you know, and I know, the word law can mean what we think of it in our culture to mean. Law is a whole bunch of rules, right? And we talk to people about, you know, obeying the law. And we're usually talking about rules. But when Jesus uses the word law, when Paul uses the word law, when when Peter uses the word law, sometimes they're talking about rules. Sometimes they're talking about the first five books of the Tanakh. Sometimes they're talking about the entire Tanakh. And they're just using this term, and it's called synecdoche. I know I got that one right. You don't need to remember that one, but that's what it is. When you use a part of something to refer to the whole thing, okay? And so I'm like, why are you even trying to use these words this morning? (laughs) Like, I know I'm going to screw something up. But anyway, so when, when Jesus says law... We have to ask and look at the scripture and ask, what is he referring to? It's really important, okay? The second thing that we have to understand is that this, the Tanakh, what we call, again, what we call the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, in many ways is a story. Now, it does contain rules, but when you read it as a whole, what you see is a narrative, and it's the story It's the story of God making promises, promises which are called covenants or sometimes referred to as testaments, which is where these words come from. So God makes promises to his people, the Hebrew people, to bless them and to bless the entire world through them. And then as we read through the Tanakh, the Old Testament, we see how God's people responded to his promises, how they did and didn't obey his commands, his laws, and how they waited expectantly for these other promises, these greater promises, this bigger promise that God made, that at some point he's going to bless the whole world through them, that at some point he's going to send a ruler, a king, who will be the king forever over the nation of Israel, and that the nation of Israel will have dominion, will will be greater even than it ever has been before, and that it will be a king who's going to rule them forever, and is going to rescue them from captivity, and rescue them from, from all the difficult things they've gone through. And the word for this promised rescuer, this deliverer who's going to come, the chosen one who will bring God's people back to this place of prominence 
And in God's promise, God's covenant, God's testament to them is that this chosen one is going to, to not just bless them, but through them bless the entire world. And the Hebrew word for that, for the chosen one, is the Messiah. And when the Tanakh ends, at the end of the Tanakh, it ends on, on this kind of down but hopeful note that the rescuer will come someday. That the Messiah will come someday and will restore and redeem God's people. But that's where it ends. And then there's 400 years, 400 years from the end of this until the beginning of the story that's told in this. And so then the story that's told in this, 400 years later, starts... In what are called the Gospels, the first four books of of these 27 in the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are four biographies of Jesus. And so when we're looking at Matthew today, what we're looking at is 400 years after this is over, here's what's going on when Jesus arrives. And Jesus arrives, and he starts speaking, and he starts teaching, and the first public proclamation that Jesus makes is in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, and Jesus says this. Uh, in Matthew 4, 17, he says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven. In the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, the Hebrew people, God's people have been promised, I will send my chosen one, and he's going to bring back and reestablish my kingdom. And so Jesus shows up and he tells people to repent, which means stop thinking the way you've been thinking and start thinking a different way. For the kingdom of heaven, that thing you've been waiting for, that promise, right, this big, the whole point of the, of your scriptures is at hand. It's, it's here. And this phrase at hand, it, it kind of has this double meaning of both of being like, I mean, you think of what, when something's at hand, it's like it's coming, it's here, it's not quite here, but it's here, it's like it's breaking through. It's coming. The kingdom of heaven is now. The thing you've been waiting for, 400 years between the last time a prophet spoke to God's people and said this will happen, till now, today, he says, it's coming, it's here. So Jesus is preaching now, and what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks is he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, and specifically last week we were looking at what the part in the Sermon on the Mount that we refer to as the Beatitudes, and in that he talks several times about the kingdom of heaven, and who's in the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And the weird, crazy, difficult thing, as he's talking to this audience, this audience who's grown up their whole lives studying their scriptures, and believing that a chosen one, a Messiah, would come, and he would set everything right, and he would restore their kingdom. And now they're in captivity to the Romans. And they're like, the Messiah is going to come. He's going to save us. He's going to free us from our captivity. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish a new government. He's going to be the ruler, and we're never going to be taken captive again because he's going to rule forever. And Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom is here. And they look around and they're like, wait. We're still in captivity. Are you saying you're going to start a revolution? Are you going to raise up an army? Are we going to overthrow the Romans? Is that what this means? And Jesus says, no, here's what the kingdom looks like. And he says, blessed 
are the peacemakers. And they're like, peacemakers? Wait, the kingdom, we're in captivity. We've got to make war so we can overthrow our captors. How can the kingdom of heaven belong to peacemakers? He says, blessed are those who mourn. They're like, we're tired of mourning. We've been mourning for 400 years plus. We thought in the kingdom here we were going to celebrate. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the word earth that's translated earth is the land. And they're like, this is our land. We've wanted this land. We were promised this land. How can we get this land by being meek? We got this land by fighting. God told us to fight. We fought. We drove people out. Now Jesus is back and he's saying the kingdom's here and we're going to get this land by being meek. This doesn't work. And so the question becomes, Jesus, we're hearing everything you're saying. And you're talking about the kingdom. It looks absolutely nothing like what we thought it was supposed to look like. So what are you saying? Are you saying everything we've believed our whole lives is wrong? Are you saying everything we've studied, everything we've looked at, are we just supposed to throw it all out? Have we just totally and completely misunderstood everything? Jesus, is that what you're saying? And so Jesus says this in verse 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And we know now, because we've looked at this, when he says the law or the prophets, what he's talking about is their scriptures. And he says, you've read this, you've studied this, you believe in this. Now I'm here and I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven and it looks different than what you thought. Please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that's all wrong. I'm not saying that we throw all that out. I'm not here to abolish it. And he says this, I am here, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying is an incredibly bold statement. I mean, sometimes people will look at the fact that, uh, spoiler if you didn't know this, but Jesus is going to get arrested and, and killed. And they'll go, why were the authorities, why were the Jewish authorities so angry with Jesus? Was it because they were jealous? Maybe a little bit. But a lot of it, a lot of it comes from this. Jesus makes statements like this, which to us, maybe don't connect in the way they would have to his audience. A Jewish audience would have heard Jesus saying this, and what Jesus is saying here, everything you read in the Tanakh, everything that you've heard about the kingdom of heaven, everything, all of that, that's all about me. Now, think about that. He's saying, everything you've read about God, everything you've read about how you should live, everything you've read about your nation and what it would look like for your nation to return to power and how the whole world's going to be blessed through you, all of that stuff, that's all about me. That is incredibly bold. Incredibly bold. He's saying that everything that was written all in some way points to him and that his life, his appearance, his teaching and his actions are bringing closure, are fulfilling everything that has been written up to this point. He says, the entirety of your scriptures is me. And all the questions you have, and all the gaps in your understanding, and everything that was left hanging, it's all about me. That's incredibly bold. He says, look, 
The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. And it's me. I'm the chosen one. I'm the Messiah. I'm here to bring all of this together. I'm the one who's going to put everything right. I'm the one who's going to bless the world through you. It's me. If what Jesus is saying is true, it changes absolutely everything. Because what Jesus is saying here is not, hey, I'm here to teach you some truths about God. What Jesus is saying here is not, I want to tell you more about the human condition and how you can have a better life. Now, does Jesus do those things? Absolutely, he does. But what Jesus is saying is that he is way more than just information. He's way more than advice. He's way more than instruction. He's way more than just truth. He's the truth. He's everything. Now in saying this, and this is where, you know, that, that, that could create a lot of tension, right? I mean, that could create a lot of stress. We've believed in this our whole lives, and you're saying this is about you? Look at verse 18, he says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. Again, using the word law to refer to all of the Tanakh, all of what we call the Old Testament, until all is accomplished, meaning this. He's affirming the truth of the scriptures. He's affirming the truth of those prophecies. He's saying everything that's there, it's all true. It's all good. I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying we need to throw it all out. It's all true. You just have to understand it's all about me. So the next natural question for his audience, for, for those who are listening to him, if what he's saying is true, would be this. Okay, so if what you're saying is true, and this is a bold, massive claim, and this would change everything, so I'm not sure if I agree with you, but if I do, Jesus, if that's true, what do we do with all of that stuff we're supposed to be doing? There's all these laws. There's all these sacrifices. There's all these ceremonies. There's all these moral codes. What are we supposed to do with those? Because here's what we've been taught, Jesus. We've been taught that we need to follow these rituals, follow these ceremonies, do these sacrifices, act and perform in these ways. And if we do that, we can be declared righteous before God. That we can do, if we do all the right things, if we, if we avoid sin by doing all the right things, then we're good with God. And if we don't, if we sin, if we mess up, then here's the steps we go through. Here's the process we need to go through to purify ourselves. We make sacrifices. What do we do with all that? And Jesus says, look, here's what you have to understand. All that stuff, it's not going away. But it has been changed. Because all of those rituals... All of those ceremonies, all of those sacrifices, they're all being fulfilled, Jesus says, by me. What does that mean for him to fulfill those things? Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? In order to be forgiven for sins, the Tanakh, the law, would teach that a good Jew who sinned would need to make sacrifices. And there were several different, and if you read in, in the, the, sorry, I keep wanting to use the term Old Testament, which, so we'll call it that. If you read in the Old Testament, there's all these different sacrifices. 
based on what you sinned and how you sinned and who sinned and all that. And so you would take, and but in most of them, most of them are animal sacrifices where you would have to take, for example, a lamb, and specifically a spotless lamb, meaning it didn't have any visible defects, it was as pure or as, as good as could, you could get, and you would have to take this lamb and sacrifice it, you would have to kill it, so that its death would take the punishment that was due to you. And you would have to do that on a regular basis based on how and when and how many times you would sin. Jesus comes in. Now this hasn't happened yet at this point when Jesus is talking, but when he's saying these things are being fulfilled by me, this is what he's talking about. Jesus comes in and he takes all sin from all time on himself and he allows himself as a perfect, because Jesus doesn't sin. Jesus comes to earth and he, unlike every other human being, he doesn't sin at all. So he's perfect. He's spotless, right? And he's often referred to as the Lamb of God. And so Jesus, as the perfect spotless Lamb of God, allows himself to be sacrificed, to be killed. And by allowing himself to be sacrificed, he fulfills the requirement of the law for an animal sacrifice To cover over our sins. And here's why he fulfills it. Why he's more than just imitating it. And he's more than just kind of showing us what it's like. He fulfills it because his sacrifice is sufficient for all sins. For all time. And so whereas in the Tanakh... When they're following, when, when, when a good Jew is following the law, they'd have to make those sacrifices at the very least yearly, maybe more often, because of the repetitiveness of their sin. They'd make a sacrifice that would cover over their past sins. Jesus comes in, he makes a sacrifice, and it covers it all. It's a once and for all. And it doesn't have to come over and over and over again because he's that good. So Jesus says, that doesn't mean that all those sacrifices in the past were wrong or bad or any of that, it just means they're all complete. I'm completing them. There are all kinds of purification rituals. Because when, when a Jewish person would, would sin, they would have a sacrifice and it would forgive them, it would take care of the penalty, the consequence But they would still be considered, and there's a ton, and you read the Old Testament, you see a ton of stuff about cleanliness and being unclean. And all of these rituals to be clean, and all the purification ceremonies that they'd have to go through. Jesus comes in, and he says, my sacrifice for you, it doesn't just forgive you of your sins, it cleans you, it cleanses you, so that now, even though you have sinned, even though you have done wrong, even though you continue to do so, because my cleansing is so complete and so fulfilling, now when God looks at you, he sees you as clean. And you don't have to keep going back and trying to clean yourself up over and over and over again because I've done it. And my sacrifice covers over your sins. And it doesn't just take away the punishment, it cleanses you, it transforms you. This is a beautiful, what Jesus is talking about here is a beautiful new way for his followers and his disciples to look at and read the Old Testament. To see everything in it. And I've just given two examples. There's so many more. I could just go on and on and on. Even the stories. 
Right? Because there's all these stories in the Old Testament. And if you grew up in church, you heard all these stories about people like David and Goliath. Or you heard these stories about like Joseph and his brothers. And, and, and when we look back now, and we say, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. The story of David isn't a story about having courage in the face of insurmountable odds. It's the story of one man coming in to rescue an entire nation. That's Jesus. And we look at, we look at the story of Joseph and his brothers. And the story of Joseph and his brothers is not just a story of how God is working behind the scenes and turning all things to good, which it is, but it's also a story of of, of, of a member of a family who's despised by his family and yet forgiving and blessing them in spite of that. That's Jesus. And so we look through and as we read through what Jesus is saying is you can see me through all of this. And specifically, very specifically, I'm not, I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not minimizing it. Even, and this is where our question comes in, and this is where it gets kind of sticky, even the rules, specifically, even the rules, look at verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you have to, we have to understand this verse, verse 19, in the context of verse 18. Okay? Because... What Jesus is saying here, there are lots and lots of places in the New Testament where what we would consider rules, laws, ceremonies from the Old Testament seem to be relaxed. Where, where Jesus or one of the apostles basically says, that thing we used to do, we don't have to do that anymore to have right standing with God. But Jesus said we can't, we can't tell people that. We can't relax them. What he's saying is this. He's not saying that we're throwing out all the old rules. What he's saying is we have to view all of it. Everything I've set up to this point, everything God's set up to this point, has to be viewed through the lens of Jesus and what he has done and who he is. And so where there used to be a purification ritual, we're not getting rid of the purification ritual. It's just completed now. It doesn't have to be done over and over and over again. Where there used to be all these sacrifices, we're not getting rid of the sacrifices. They just don't have to be done over and over and over again. And so where there are all these moral rules, these guidelines about what it looks like to live a moral life, Jesus says, we're not getting rid of all those. You just need to view them now in a different way. So does that mean, and so we come back to the big question we started it all with, because your question isn't, when you look at this, your question isn't, so do we have to do sacrifices? Right? And your question isn't like, how are we supposed to observe these specific holy days? Your question is, do I have to follow all the rules? Right? That's my question, right? And there's all these moral, ethical codes. Do we have to follow all those rules? And what Jesus says is probably not the answer most of us want. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. And this is big. 
And this is probably pretty important. And even if all the rest of this, you're like, that's interesting intellectually or that's interesting. This is the part that I think has the most impact on us, especially those of us who would consider ourselves to be believers and followers of Jesus. And we as his disciples say, we want to be faithful and we want to follow him. What does that look like? And what Jesus says here is that the standard of morality and the standard of ethics for a believer of Jesus, for a disciple of Jesus, is not less than what it was before he came in. It's actually higher. But it's higher, again, in a different way. And the whole rest, maybe not the entirety of the rest of the, but a whole bunch of what's left of the Sermon on the Mount, is actually, in a lot of ways, Jesus expanding on verse 20 right here. Because what he is saying is that the way we have understood, the way they, as, as followers of, of, of the Hebrew God, of followers of the Tanakh, of the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the way they have understood and taught and followed the law is transformed by understanding who Jesus is and what he's done. The righteousness, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and this is what's really, really important, and here's what I want you to catch, okay? If you've, a, lot, a lot of history stuff, if you zoned out, come back, because this is, I think, what's really important here. The righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was an external righteousness, okay? The scribes, the scribes were people whose job was to study the law, to study the Torah, to study all the rules. They made copies of it. That's why they were called scribes. They applied it to people's lives. When people had questions, they would go to the scribes. How do, what does this look like? How do I deal with this? And they go, well, here's the rule. Here's the rule. And they were, they were professional rule teachers and rule followers. The Pharisees were a sect within Judaism who had a very, very strict interpretation of the law. Sometimes there was some overlap between the two. Um, but these two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew the rules. They knew the rules inside and out. And they knew what was okay and what wasn't okay. And they knew what was over the line and what was right up against the line. And their whole job and their whole purpose in life was to make sure that people understood, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. And if you want to be good with God, you have to do these things. And if you do any of these things, you're no longer good with God, and so you have to do these other things. And they knew all the structures and all the rules. But the problem with all that was that righteousness that was based totally and completely on following the rules made zero impact on people's hearts. You can, I can, we can follow all of the rules on the outside without ever having our hearts transformed at all on the inside. We can follow all of God's rules without loving God a single bit. We can perform up to the highest standard we can possibly achieve externally and inside have a heart that has absolutely no desire for what is actually good and true. We can look at our lives And we can look at the sets of rules and we can say, I'm going to have the best life I can by following X, Y, and Z. Just tell me what I have to do and I will follow all of those rules 
to make sure I get the outcome I'm looking for. And internally have absolutely no desire to have any kind of a relationship with the God who created the entire universe. You can actually follow all the rules and still have a heart that is openly in rebellion against God. And then Jesus fleshes this out with examples here. And he gives examples of anger and lust, divorce, oh, so all these different things that he says. And he says over and over throughout the rest of this chapter, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. And what he keeps saying is this. Look, here's the rule as you've understood it. It's an external rule. But I say to you, there's so much more than that. Look at what he says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now this is good. Okay, because if I'm a rule follower and all I want to do is check the boxes, then my rule here is very clear. Don't murder. I can do that. Okay, I've lived now 40 years of my life. I have yet to murder anyone. Okay, so that would have been a huge revelation if I hadn't said that, wouldn't it? But, okay, um, but I can do the ex, I can follow the external rules. No murder? Got it. Thank you. Yes. Check. In fact, and this is what's ironic, when you talk to people and you say, do you think you're a good person? What is the example they always go to? I mean, I think I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I've never killed anybody, right? Because this is like, okay, yes, well, we've heard it. We should not murder. We get that. But I say to you, but look at what Jesus says. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Wait. Okay. Murder. We get that. It's external. I can see that. I know whether I've killed anybody or not. Anger? Anger. Jesus, I don't know if you realize this. Anger isn't an action. Anger is an emotion. Have you ever tried to not feel something? Have you ever been depressed and somebody said, cheer up? How well did that work? Right? When you're really mad and somebody says, hey, just chill out. How effective is that for you? Right? When somebody says, don't be angry, that's like an impossible task, isn't it? And Jesus is saying here, and look at the words he uses, because whoever murders, in verse 21, will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's the same language. What Jesus is saying here is, yeah, you maybe think you can figure out this external, you can complete the external rules. What I'm telling you is there's something internal going on inside your heart Just following the external rules doesn't fix what's going on. The problem that's inside of you, the sin that has infected all of us, the sin that makes us unclean, the sin that puts us in need of a sacrifice to forgive us, it's not just the external things we do. The standard that Jesus is talking about is not lower, it's much, much higher. The question from a Christian, do I still have to follow the rules, is kind of the wrong question. The question is, is my heart transformed by knowing Jesus? 
Let me give you another example. This isn't one of Jesus' examples, but this is one that I've seen very, very, um, very real in my own life. When I was, I, I was in Oklahoma for two years. I was a children's pastor in Oklahoma. And so working with kids, um, a lot, I would get questions from kids. Kids are great to ask questions about the Bible because they have very, very honest questions. Right? Adults know how to phrase their questions with just the right words to make it sound better and to make themselves sound really spiritual. Kids don't know how to do that, and so their questions are very honest, very authentic. The most frequent question I ever got as a children's pastor was kids would ask me, because especially kids who had grown up in church, is blank, you can fill in the blank, is blank a swear word? Why would they ask that question? Because, you know, because if it is, then they know they're not supposed to say it. It's against the rules. If it's not, game on, right? I can say it all I want. Now, I was a children's pastor, so my answer to those kids was always, ask your parents. But <laughs> the real answer, the correct answer is this. Look, Jesus God never gives us a list of words. Now, I didn't know that. When I was a kid, I thought there was a list. You thought there was a list. You probably could make a list. Don't write it down, okay? But there's a, there's, there's a list, right? Because we know there's some words that are offensive, and there's some, ba- there's some bad words, and we shouldn't say the bad words. But there's no list. Does the Bible talk about communication? Absolutely it does. Does the Bible talk about our words? Yeah. Does Jesus tell us that we should talk in a certain way to other people? Yeah. Sure, he does. But he doesn't give us a list. Because he knows two things. One, he was speaking Aramaic, and so the list wouldn't translate very well. But number two, he also knows that if we had a list, anytime we get a list, we do what all rule followers do. We, we stick to the list. And we look for everything outside of the list because we have no actual internal desire to change. Why? Here's the question those kids should ask. Here's the question we should ask. Why do you want to know whether that word's on the list? Why are you wanting to say it? How are you wanting to use it? Are you wanting to tear people down? Are you wanting to hurt people with your words? Here's the thing I've learned over the course of my life, and I'll bet most of those kids probably knew it by then. If not, they figured it out since then. You can destroy a person without using any words on that list. You can have language that is much more corrupt, and by corrupt I mean destructive, that is 100% G-rated but you use it in a way that destroys another person. What Jesus says, and his teaching throughout, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout the Gospels, and the Apostles' teaching of what all this means, is that it doesn't matter if you're following a list. What matters is how is your life being marked by God's grace? The standard is much, much higher than what's the list. What's the list of things I can and can't do? What's the list of where I can and can't go? What's the list of what I should and shouldn't watch? That's not the question. The question is what is in our hearts. Now, here's what I know. 
the answer to what is in my heart is usually not very good. And so if Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, and he's not talking about external behavior, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, where does that leave us? There's two very real, very real dangers, very real false gospels that Jesus combats with this verse. And I apologize, I realize I'm running short on time, so, but I want to hit both of these because I think this is really important. There's two false gospels that Jesus combats here. The first one is what we could call universalism. Universalism is the idea that everyone ultimately will enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says that's not true. Only those whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees will enter the kingdom of heaven. Sin is serious. God hates sin. Sin separates us from a holy God. There's no entrance into heaven without righteousness. But the other thing he combats in this verse is the second problem, which we could call legalism. Legalism is a misunderstanding of what righteousness is. Legalism is the idea that you can earn righteousness by following all the rules, by following the laws. But Jesus says that doesn't work because you can't on your own be good enough. If righteousness was about just doing the right things, the scribes and Pharisees would be good because they did all the right things. But again, Jesus isn't saying, unless your righteousness is as good as the scribes and Pharisees, he says it has to exceed. What is he saying? He's saying righteousness, and in here, in verse 20, meaning righteousness to me, not are you doing the right things. That's not what this word means. The word righteousness in verse 20 means, what is your standing before God? And on our own, none of us has the ability to stand before God righteous. None of us could enter the kingdom of heaven based on our own behavior and our own works. So what Jesus does, what he's alluding to here, And what he will fulfill throughout the rest of his life and through his teaching is to offer to us a gift of his own righteousness. His own goodness. His own perfect morality. His own right standing before God. He offers it to us out of his goodness, out of his grace, out of his mercy. Because he knows none of us, none of us on our own could ever achieve it. What Jesus is offering to us, though, is so much better than either of these wrong views. He's offering us a life that is free of guilt, free of shame. Not because we have achieved perfection, but because we are free to walk in obedience to him, knowing that our righteousness is secure in him. Because he, because Jesus has fulfilled all of the demands of the law, All of the promises of the prophets. He's done it all. 
And so we are free to put our hope and our trust in Him and what He did, not in ourselves. If my only way in with God is to be good enough, I'm sunk. But Jesus is offering something so much better. If you've never tasted that freedom, I want you to understand that invitation is open to you. Always. Believe in what Jesus has done. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. The completion of God's story. And that his righteousness is available to you. Not if you perform. Not if you follow the rules. If you trust in him. Let's pray. We're going to share communion together. I hope, I hope that you will consider and ask yourself, what kind of righteousness are you trusting in? Is it your own? Or is it Jesus' righteousness being gifted to you? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. God, I know in my own life, you have transformed my heart. And I desperately want that for every person in this room. To know the freedom that comes from following you. To feel the security of trusting not in our own righteousness, our own goodness, our own morality. To feel the freedom, the security, the comfort that only comes from you. So God, I pray that for those who are here today who are not believers in your gospel, that they would believe, that they would trust. Those of us who are, that we would remember again what you have done for us. How good you are to us. In your name I pray. Amen.